0: drive us to ask a particular question, and we'll encounter it very clearly this morning. It's, who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus who calms the wind and the waves, who, uh, who deals with someone who's so, uh, so demonically uh, possessed that he's living in a cemetery that society itself has given up on him? And Jesus puts him in his right mind. Uh, A woman who doctors have forsaken in her medical condition as being an impossible case. And a daughter who is dead and lying in a bed at home who Jesus raises to life. In every case, we see Jesus doing what should be impossible. And as he does so, we'll learn who he is. And so, if you would open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible this morning in the back of the pew in front of you, you should find uh, one and you can use the index right at the front to find the New Testament book of the Gospel of Mark. Look with me this morning at Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Father, I ask that you would help us to be uh, seekers this morning, seeking to answer that same question. Uh, Whether we we are new to the Bible and Christ, uh, or we have been like the disciples, walking with Christ for a long time, that question is of vital importance, and there is still more to learn. And so I pray, Lord, that you would show us, that you would teach us who you are this morning. We ask, God, that you would send your spirit to instruct us in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to notice up front um, that this, uh, this happening, this event in the ministry of Jesus, Mark reminds us happens on the same day of where we've been in the gospel of Mark. And so, what's just happened is Jesus has been teaching the crowds from Peter's boat, and he's been doing so in parables. And all of the parables have been discussing how it is that God's kingdom is going to come about. And the last few parables we saw uh, point out that God's kingdom comes surprisingly, like a plant growing underground and a farmer doesn't know how it grows, he just plants it and then eventually he harvests it, Uh, that it comes inevitably, that a harvest is coming and that God's work is going to be done, Um, as well that one of the ways, one of the facets of how it works has to do with faith, okay? We could even suggest this morning that what happens here for Jesus' disciples is a form of a living parable, Okay? Jesus is going to demonstrate in person who he is and how these things work. But it's also worth pointing out here uh, that, as it says in verse 35, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him uh, with them in the boat, just as he was. Okay. Now, just a few verses later, Jesus is going to be completely asleep in the back of this boat during a huge storm. When it says there, they took him just as he was, the recognition is that they don't go back home for any form of provisions, uh, that they don't uh, do anything. They're in the boat, he finishes teaching, and he says, let's go to the other side, okay? Clearly here, Jesus is tired. He's very tired, in fact, uh, in fact, this is the only place in all of the Gospels where it talks about Jesus being asleep. And that's a little bit striking just because he's sleeping through a storm that is sinking the boat that he's in. And don't think of this like, uh, like a modern boat and he's gone down into the undercarriage of the boat and he's away from the weather. At the best, he's tucked under the back seat, okay? He is fully exposed to this storm, and yet he is asleep. Um, but the other thing we need to understand here is the other occupants in the boat, okay? Because basically, this, is going to, this storm is going to hit, and they are afraid, okay? Now, um, I want you to just uh, notice a couple of things. First off, when it says here that they're crossing the lake... Uh, this is uh, the Sea of Galilee, or uh, Lake Tiberius, as Luke titles it, because Tiberius is the city that's the largest right on the Sea of Galilee. Um, it's pretty similar to Lake Washington in size, uh, except that it is quite a bit wider. So at its widest point, eight miles across, okay. Um, and so the second thing we need to understand about this lake is that at least, Half of the occupants in these boats, James and Andrew, Peter and John and others, are fishermen. And this is their lake. This is where they spend all of their time kind of like the Puget Sound, there's a couple of things around the Sea of Galilee which make the weather of it very unpredictable and quick-changing, okay? Mount Hermon is right there, which is a snow-capped mountain. Uh, You've got the Mediterranean Sea, which is just a little bit inland from there. Uh, And so you've got all of these factors going on. And so storms, even though it's a lake, can be really significant. Even to this day, uh, the storms on the Sea of Galilee can be very significant. Um, but what's especially interesting about this passage here uh, is the irrelevant details. Okay, I'll show you the most obvious one. Look at what it says in verse 36. Leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. Okay, great. Right, why are we told that? Uh, in the same way, notice the level of detail about the storm itself. Verse 37, a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling, okay? Notice two things there. One, you get a very descriptive happening of these waves rolling into the boat and then second, already filling there is in the present tense. Did you notice that? The boat was already filling, Okay. Uh, The reason I'm pointing these things out is because these are tangible facets of eyewitness testimony, okay? Have you ever listened to someone tell a story and it's got irrelevant details, right? They were like, oh, so yesterday I was going to the grocery store and I had to pick up some green beans. And it's like, green beans don't matter to the story, do they? But when we tell stories, we include details as we remember them. We review what happens, okay? Now, I'm not just pointing that out this morning to show Uh, the uh, earmarks, uh, which are especially prevalent in the Gospel of Mark, of the fact that these stories were told by those who were present. But to point out something more important, okay? And here's what it is. When this storm breaks, it breaks on seasoned sailors, these people know what's going on. They know what this storm means. They were there and they were present. And how did they read how serious the storm was? When they wake Jesus, what do they say? Wake up, Jesus. We're about to die. Okay. Now, what I want you to understand here is effectively that the fear of the disciples here is not the fear of ignorance. Okay. There's lots of things we are irrationally afraid of. Things that we are afraid of because we've never encountered, right? Uh, Like the old movies where the caveman sees fire for the first time, right? Uh, There are irrational fears and there are fears because we just don't know enough about them, okay? But that's not what this fear is. This is not an innocent fear. This is a fully knowing, fully experiencing, back past history informed fear. These men have been in storms like this. These men have probably lost neighbors and maybe even family members to storms like this, okay? Uh, when we're on a plane and we hit turbulence, you are, uh, your fear is juxtaposed with your past experience of turbulence, right? And so if you've been in ridiculously crazy turbulence and made it through it, a couple of bumps in the air don't bother you. But if it's your first time flying, if you've never heard of turbulence, that will freak you out that first time you feel that little dip in the plane, right? These are seasoned sailors, okay? The reason why I bring this up is because, like I said here, Jesus is going to do the impossible. But the impossible that he does uh, is, is here directly related to this knowledgeable fear. Okay. Something that I've discovered in our lives is that this idea of uh, ignorance and knowledge and fear, uh, that it works both ways. What I mean is there are things in our life that we are so well acquainted of or excuse me, so well acquainted with that we just write off as being impossible. Okay. You tell a child, that you have stage four lymphoma cancer, that may not mean much to them. That may not put fear in them, okay? And so they say, well, we're, sh- you know, let's just go to the doctor. Or they put a Band-Aid on your wrist and go, this always helps me, right? There are those forms of things. There are many times even, uh, even in our own lives where we can trust God for some things, but not others, because we just are too fully acquainted with them. We know what's at stake we've uh, like the doctor who's di- done the diagnosis we have the education behind us we have the the times over and over again where this has led to death we have these things that's what's going on here okay many times in fact in the gospels we see places where the seasoned knowledge of these fishermen are juxtaposed against the statements and the identity of jesus okay so there's another occasion where peter is in his boat uh, and Jesus is again teaching from the boat, and after he teaches, he says, hey, Peter, let's catch some fish. Now, Peter knows uh, that fishing in the Sea of Galilee is done in the evening and in the nighttime, and not the middle of the day, because the sun pushes the fish down into the depths, away from the heat, into the cool. Okay. Uh, Peter knows, in fact, on this particular occasion that they fished all night and caught nothing when times were good. And Peter says, Lord, we fished all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I'll put the net down. And the net is so full with fish, he has to signal another boat for help because the boat is start boat starts sinking from the weight of all the fish in it, okay? Uh, there are places here, some of the places that are most untouchable in our life to faith or to even prayer are the places where we just know too much to trust. That's one of these occasions. That's what's going on here. Now, I want you to notice in contrast with this, we have the seasoned sailors who are freaking out, who are grabbing buckets and bailing out the the boat because they're at risk of sinking and drowning. And what is Jesus doing? Jesus is asleep. Jesus is completely asleep. In fact, when it says uh, that they um, woke him, that word there for woke doesn't speak of a light tap or a shoulder shake it means that they shook him awake okay it took a while to rouse him out of his sleep because he was sleeping so deeply but here's the thing here we can ask the question again is this sleep that Jesus is going through the sleep of ignorance or the sleep of knowledge is he asleep here because he doesn't know the danger he's in is he asleep here because he was expecting a restful nap on the lake when actuality, in actuality this storm was rolling in? Remember, it was Jesus who said, let's go now, let's not take any provision, let's just go, and then he goes directly to sleep, okay? Now, you can tell from what happens afterwards that that's clearly not the case. In fact, notice again, um, they say to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing, Now, if you're a Christian and you've read this story before, you can spoil the idea by seeing this as a form of prayer. Like they go, oh, if Jesus is awake, he can do something about this storm. And so the idea there grammatically would be they are saying, don't you care that we, your disciples, are perishing? Jesus, why don't you save us? But that's clearly not what's going on. When Jesus acts here, the first people who are shocked and dumbfounded are the disciples. Okay. What do they want Jesus to do? Grab a bucket. That's what this is. They're saying, Teacher, do you not realize how high the stakes are? That's what they're saying. They're saying, Do you not realize that we, collectively, including you, Jesus, are perishing? It's about his indifference and not his compassion. Okay. But when he does act... He criticizes them for being afraid. These seasoned sailors who know the depths of danger, he says, what's the big deal? Why are you so afraid? You see, I would suggest to you this morning that that's because Jesus' sleep here is the sleep of knowledge and not the sleep of ignorance. Jesus sets out on this sea fully knowing what's about to happen and sleeps like a baby. Jesus is completely and fully at peace. There's a contrast that can be made that seems to be intentional in the story. The way that Mark has chosen to tell this story both includes these eyewitness details as well as a little bit of creativity and craftsmanship. And the creativity and the craftsmanship ties it to two other passages in the Old Testament. One of them is the book of Jonah. Okay, in the opening of Jonah, one of God's prophets is sent to carry a message to a foreign people, and surprisingly, the prophet goes, I'm not doing that, and he hires a boat headed in the other direction, he's off to Tarshish, crossing the Mediterranean Sea, and we find him, like Jesus, asleep beneath, and roused by the other sailors, because this storm comes up, and it's dangerous. But there's a juxtaposition going on because they're different. As you find it in the story of Jonah, the reason the storm is there is a direct response to God's disobedience. In fact, what the sailors do at that time, they go, okay, this is not just a natural storm. This is supernatural. Let's draw straws and find out who the culprit is. And they do so, and it comes to Jonah, and he confesses, and he says, yes. I'm a prophet of the living God. He sent me to do this. I rejected it. He says, if you throw me into the sea, the sea will be calm. And they do so, and instantly the storm stops. But with Jonah, the storm exists because of disobedience. With Jesus, when he tells the disciples, let us go across the sea, they're in a different context. They're obeying orders. In fact, Jesus' whole life According to his own testimony, he always did the things that pleased the Father. Jesus is the only person in the history of the world who lived continuously, uninterruptedly, and fully in the will of God at all time. Jesus, on this sea, in the midst of the storm, is right where he's supposed to be. And obviously, he sleeps knowing the storm is coming. In fact, I would suggest to you again that this is Jesus' classroom for the disciples, that here is a possibility, a, a chance to instruct them. Jesus knows the storm is coming, and yet he is not afraid. Jesus calls the storm to have peace, but he expects the disciples to be at peace already. He says, why are you afraid? Jesus is so at peace that he's asleep in the midst of the storm. Psalm 29 is one of my favorite psalms. Now, if you were to read it, you might not resonate or understand why it's the case. And the reason it's the case is because it's structurally one of the most intricately put together psalms. Uh, But what it's about is it's about a storm that is raging and moving across Israel. And David, from Jerusalem, is watching this storm and he sees it over the wilderness and he watches it roll into Jerusalem. And he's talking about it and the whole time he identifies the storm as the voice of the Lord. Seven times he repeats it in the psalm, the voice of the Lord. And once again, this storm in Psalm 29 is no small storm. Okay. It says that it's breaking the cedars of Lebanon with tongues of fire. In other words, lightning is bursting trees and splitting them in half. He says this voice of the Lord causes the deer to give birth. You know how we have this observable reality of nature uh, and how it responds to storms? So birds have a tendency to evacuate right before big natural disasters. Another thing that we find, and this is true biologically, is that pregnant animals who feel a storm coming, will be pushed directly into labor and give birth right there at the beginning of the storm as a survival tactic, okay? And so David says that's what's going on in the storm, and the storm is raging over the wilderness. It's moving in. He sees it moving across the waters uh, of, um, of the sea, and then it gets to Jerusalem, and he says uh, that in God's temple in Jerusalem, all his people say glory. And if you're not reading it too fast, that's a double-take moment. You go, wait, what? This is a storm that causes animals to give birth prematurely. This is a storm that shatters the strongest trees in Israel. And this is a, strong, uh, uh, a storm that leads the people to worship. How could that be? And this is how the psalm finishes. It says, uh, the Lord who sat enthroned at the flood, okay, remember Noah and the flood, that's the reference point there. The Lord who was enthroned then is Lord forevermore. He will give his people strength and peace, okay? David knows that the storm is the voice of the Lord. David knows that the storm is subject to God's sovereign hand, so David doesn't fear it. He sees it for what it is, uh, which is awesome, right? Have you ever noticed how much we enjoy danger when it's toothless? Okay, so like we all want as high def as possible video footage of hurricanes. We want to be as close as possible to the action of a tornado, right? We want to be able to see the blood dripping from the tooth of the lion in the savannah, right? as long as it's on the other side of our television screen, okay? In fact, think of all the ways that we personify adventure and high-octane things in ways that are safe, okay? Where we strip the actual danger out of it, okay? The reason is because of this idea of awe. Tornadoes are fascinating. Hurricanes are amazing. These natural disasters, even in our modern world, all we can do is find ways to survive them. We can't stop them. We can't remove them. We may be able to predict them sometimes. We may be able to evacuate the area. We may be able to, you know, find ways to better survive them. But nature constantly reminds us we are not in control. Right? It's, it's one of the great clear and visible vulnerabilities of what it means to be human. But for Jesus, there's peace. He knows that he's going to go through the storm, but he fully expects to come out the other side. He's at rest. He's not worried. He's not wringing his hands. He's at peace. Like David in Psalm 29, he knows that God is not just the storm bringer, but the peacemaker. He lives in that reality. The disciples do not. Think about this for a second. What I'm suggesting to you this morning is when things get tough and you choose fear over faith. And you experience worry over peace. And remember, I'm talking about high stakes stuff. I'm not talking about uh, you don't know if you're going to get the promotion. I'm talking about the big storms of life. I'm talking about the serious dark days, the dark nights of the soul. I'm talking about these periods. I want you to see uh, that although we could say the reason I can't trust here is because I know too much, Jesus stands in as a counterexample and would suggest actually the reason you can't trust here is because you know too little. See, the thing is, even at this point, The disciples have gotten a taste of Jesus. They've seen him do miracles. Most likely, this eyewitness testimony here belongs to Peter. And Peter has watched as Jesus has come over to his house for dinner, discovered that his mother-in-law is sick with a fever, and Jesus just walks up, touches her, prays for her, and she gets up and she's healed. They've watched as countless people have come to Jesus and seen the same thing. They've witnessed all of the power that Jesus has over demons, over the natural world. But here in the midst of a storm for themselves, now we have a different type of knowledge. They know theoretically who Jesus is. They believe theoretically. But this storm becomes the classroom for hands-on knowledge experience of who Jesus is. Now, one way to read this, like I said, seeing that Jesus knows full well what's about to happen, that he's not caught off guard by the storm, nor is he afraid of it. One way is that he's just waiting for them to ask for help, and his plan is to get rid of the storm. And wouldn't that be a great message today if I could just say, hey, listen, whatever storm you're going through, pray to Jesus, he can make it go away. But I don't think that's really what's going on. Jesus calms the storm because the fear has overtaken his disciples. But when he asks them, why were you so afraid? His expectation is that the storm is not going to sink the ship. See, what I'm suggesting to you is that we have to watch out for mistaking the only peace that God gives us in high-stakes circumstances for the peace of cessation the peace of the ending of the storm, the peace of the avoiding of these things. One of the wrong ways to view Jesus is of some sort of uh, preventative measure, measure against hard things. And so we think, okay, if I'm in relationship with Jesus, he's powerful enough to protect me from the storm. And what we mean is, we'll never be in it. We'll never be exposed. We'll never be vulnerable. We'll never fear... Or we think, Jesus works in this way always, that when hard things happen, I pray, and Jesus instantaneously, like a genie with wishes, fixes the issue, brings about peace. But when you read this passage, again, it's clear to me that the peace that Jesus wants the disciples to have, he wants them to have before he quiets the storm, not after, He expected them to be like he was at sleep in the boat during the storm. Now that doesn't remove the fact that what Jesus does here is again impossible. Verse 39, and as he awoke, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Now, it's easy to miss because we're moving through this so quickly, but that word there for great, which is a big word, was already used in this passage about the storm. In a second's time, at the word of Jesus, we go from a great storm to a great calm. Okay. From wind and waves and a boat that is filling to glass surface lake and sunshine. There is a reason why the result of this is not relief for the disciples. Notice what it says there, verse 40. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. Not faith. Right, that's what you'd expect. You'd expect them to go, hey guys, chill out. I've got this. Don't be so afraid. And they'd go, whew, we forgot for a minute. We remember who you are now. No, they're shook to the core. They're more afraid of Jesus than they were the storm that could have taken their life. Now I don't know anything that is less modernly acceptable than that. But here's the thing. In the midst of this story, we have the disciples who know the storm and don't know Jesus, so they're afraid. Jesus' goal in the storm here is that through the storm, they would know Jesus better and that would give better grounds for faith. In fact, let me remind you that when this happens next, because it does happen again, I told you the Sea of Galilee is a tumultuous place, we find Jesus not in the boat, And he comes walking across the water itself in the midst of a storm. The disciples are rowing in the storm. They're not afraid. And they see Jesus and Peter goes, I'd like to walk with you on the top of the water. That story doesn't exist without this one. Peter is learning who Jesus is. And now in the midst of the storm, not only can he be at rest, but he can walk on the top of the waves. That is an evolution in faith, is it not? That is deeper belief. That is deeper understanding. But I need you to see this morning that the way that you get to that involves fear. Their question here is not fear because they don't know who Jesus is. It's fear because who is this person who just calms the wind and the sea obeys him? Verse 41, they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Once again, the language of that last statement is clearly crafted to draw a parallel. This time, not to Psalm 22, or excuse me, Psalm 29, or to the book of Jonah, but to Psalm 107. Okay. I want you to listen to it. If you're taking notes this morning, you can also check out Psalm 89. I believe it's verse 5. We won't take the time to turn there this morning. Psalm 107 presents a bunch of hypothetical situations that human beings find themselves in need of help and shows how God shows up and delivers and takes care of. Specifically, I want to draw your attention to verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works of the deep. Now, let me interpret there for you. That's a storm, okay? The deeds of the Lord that happen on the ocean is that big, awe-inspiring reality of a storm, okay? Verse 25, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their courage, that's the sailors, Melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Crazy scared, right? Verse 28 Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad that the waters were quiet. And he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous work to the children of man. The recognition is here that God is the one who quiets the winds, who waves obey. That was uh, Psalm 107, starting in, I believe, 23. 107, verse 22 on. The point is, Mark is pointing for us, reading this story this morning, to the answer to the question the disciples ask. Who is this that even the winds and waves obey them? Why do they put it that way? Because there's only one person it could be. Jesus is God himself. He doesn't just stand here as an example of the peace we should have as human beings trusting in God. He is also the God that we should be trusting in. In fact, I want you to notice here when he asks them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? What is he talking about there? Why is he surprised by their fear in the midst of this storm, that they are proactively bailing out the water so it doesn't sink the ship. The fact is, they are with Jesus. The boat's not going to go down because Jesus is in the boat. That's where their identity lapse is. In understanding, that's what they don't understand. And that's uh, the thing is, peace for us, is found solely and completely not in the end of the storm, not in the avoidance of the storm, but in the presence of Jesus in the midst of the storm. That's our guarantee. That's our safety. Jesus, twice in the Gospel of John, talks about the idea of peace. In one of them, he says, Peace I give to you, my peace... I give, not as the world. The peace that Jesus has here in the midst of the storm, this full simplicity of trust of his Father in heaven, that's the peace he desires to give us. And then at a later point, he says, my peace I give to you in the world, you will have tribulation, but have great courage, I have overcome the world. Okay. And so this peace is available to us but here's the question, and I want to get really specific. I know that there are people in this room this morning who are in the storms, and it's basically, well, it's easy for you to say, what do you know about difficulty? What do you know about trial? What do you know about danger? What do you know about my circumstances, or how long I've been here, or how dark things have gotten? Okay. This stuff is always harder in the storm, and it's easy for me to say, look, here, Jesus is present. He's working. Isn't that enough? And you go, I'm not so sure about that. The water's up to my neck at this point. And it's very easy for us in those times to go, why, why at all? Why the storm at all? Here's the thing. This storm becomes the canvas that God paints the identity of Christ on for these 12 men. It becomes the place where Christ can be known. It is the opportunity for them to know God wants to show who Jesus is to the disciples, and today that requires a storm. If you've been a Christian for a while, there are places where you've seen God work. There are times when you've seen God move. Hopefully, you know him better than you did when you started. You've encountered more of who Jesus is, a deeper understanding of who he is. But the way that that comes is not through theory. I can present these truths to you and they're just as true, whether you've experienced them or not, as as possible. They're facts. This is who God is. This is who Jesus is. But Jesus doesn't want you to just know about him. He wants you to know him. In the Hebrew and in the Greek, they have different words for know. And the word that's used in the Greek for knowing God, gnosko, is experiential knowledge. Okay? You can go to school and learn all about aerodynamics. You can study manuals and learn how every switch and button works on a plane. But you don't know how to fly yet. Not until you get in the plane. Not until it's at 30,000 feet. Not until you get the experience, right? That type of knowledge. Here's the thing everything in your life. This is true if you're not a Christian this morning. Everything in your life, God is using to show who he is. That's the goal. That's the purpose. Jesus says in the gospel of John, this is eternal life, right? That's the big ticket thing that Christianity presents as not just the solution, but as an available solution to all humanity, eternal life, available in Jesus Christ. But how does Jesus define it? This is eternal life that you would know the Father and the Son whom he has sent. Paul tells us, an apostle who wrote books of the New Testament, he says, Uh, in Ephesians, uh, but God has shown us kindness in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show us the depths of his kindness in Jesus Christ. What is God's goal for your life? To show you more and more of who he is and that's not just the goal for this life, but the one to come. Now we get to the scary question. Do you want to know? Do you want to know the depth of of God's safety available to you in Jesus Christ? Do you want to know the depths of his worth? Paul says, I've counted every good thing in my life as refuse in compared to this one thing, knowing Christ. How has he learned the great value of knowing Jesus? Everything else has been taken from him, and yet still he is content. Everything else has been taken from him, and yet still he finds himself in awe and in wonder. For Paul, what he has in Jesus Christ can't be taken, not by height, nor depth, nor power, nor principality, nor things that are, nor things to come. Romans chapter 8 says nothing can separate us from the love of God. And that love, that relationship, that knowing God is worth every loss Paul experiences. Here, Jesus is answering the question the disciples are asking. But they wouldn't have asked without the storm. When things get comfortable, we put on cruise control. God has more for us. And that more sometimes involves difficult and dark things. And I want to give just one little piece of encouragement to those of you who are in the midst of the storm right now. You're still here. You're still here. I can't, I can't tell you about God's faithfulness tomorrow, but you're still here today. And that's what God has promised us. In fact, when Jesus says that I give you my peace, you, in the world you will have tribulations. That's a promise he makes for us as human beings. It's going to be difficult. And he says, be encouraged, be encouraged why I have overcome the world. The idea there is that we also will make it through. We also will come through. We also will get what God has for us and we will not lose what, God, what we have entrusted to God. These are the ideas that are playing out here. There is only one way to learn that with God all things are possible. And that's to see him work in impossible odds. That's to see him move when things seem unmovable. If you're not a Christian this morning, Jesus doesn't just experience peace. He doesn't just have it in the midst of storms. He doesn't just talk about it. The way that Jesus overcomes the world is not just to get on a boat and cross the Sea of Galilee through a storm, but eventually he's headed all the way to Jerusalem to be betrayed, to be rejected, to be handed over uh, by uh, by a false trial, to be beaten, to be mocked, to be crucified. And that's where the overcoming takes place. Jesus enters into the storms of life, even death itself, so that he can give through that payment, through that cost, what we most need as human beings. And all I'm suggesting this morning... is that what God is doing in all human life and the whole world is a stage is showing who he is and that he's primarily and most importantly done that in Jesus Christ and especially in the cross and my question to you again is, do you want to know? If you want to know, I'd encourage you to keep coming back if you want to know, I'd encourage you to read the rest of this gospel, the gospel of Mark, and see what happens. Um, but you also need to recognize that if Jesus is who he proclaims to be, then he is fully capable and fully in his own right to bring storms into your life. Sometimes we shake our fists at storms. We never, we never think the storms are sentient. We never blame them for the hard things in our life. We blame the one who allows them. We blame the one who's supposedly there. Maybe you know what it's like to rouse Jesus in the back of the boat and say, don't you care that we are perishing First off, just know that you're in good company. The Psalms are full of people saying, God, where are you? Have you forgotten me? God, why won't you move? Why won't you act? That's all part and parcel of the process. That's an expression of faith. Unbelief says, there's no God to save me from this. Unbelief says, God, you clearly don't care about me and walks away. Faith continues to come and to ask and to beg, and to plead. And those who seek God with all of their heart, they find him. They may not find a sunny day and a calm ocean, but they find Jesus in the back of the boat. And they find peace. Let's pray. Father, I just want to publicly confess, Lord, my own self-preserving nature. And then I have to ask this morning, how bad do I really wanna know you more? Am Am I willing to experience fear? Am I willing to taste suffering? Am I willing to surrender control I know in each one of us this morning, Father, are multiple desires, desires that pull us in different directions. But those of us who are called by your name this morning, your church, your followers, your disciples, no matter how small it is, we want to recognize and identify that deepest will, the will to follow you, the will to know you at any cost, the will to know the living God and I just ask Lord that 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 is the prayer that you would hear I pray Lord that you would instruct us in peace not comfort but the peace that surpasses understanding the one that's weathered and proven and tested in the storms of life And I pray for everyone here who's in that season right now where there's darkness and frustration, where there's great fear, and it's the fear not of innocence and ignorance of the unknown. It's the fear of knowledge, of having, it almost seems, tasted death, being on the very cusp of darkness, despairing even of life itself, like Paul says. I pray, Lord, that they would sense your presence this morning. I pray that you'd be at work. I pray that they'd hear that still, small voice that says, be still and know that I am God. Father, we thank you, Lord, that um, that the most significant danger in our life, the self-imposed one the Bible calls sin, the one that wreaks havoc in our relationships, and has severed our relationship with you. Lord, one that we don't always identify because of the blindness that comes with sin. We can look at ourselves and say everything is fine, but you knew better. Where we apply Band-Aids, you saw cancer. And miraculously, graciously, lovingly, you became a human being. You did the part that we couldn't be, being fully obedient to God and you paid the penalty that we deserve, Lord, dying in our place, bearing our sin upon your shoulder. And if we could trust you while we were the enemies of God and you died for us, if we can trust you to take care of the greatest need in our life, we can trust you with the day-to-day. We can trust you with the storms. I thank you, Lord, that you don't discard your disciples at this time. Even your rebuke is light and gentle. It's one of progress. Do you still not yet have faith? We thank you, Lord, that you are at work in our life, not for our harm, but for our growth. Show us who you are this morning, this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we respond, let's just continue in worship this morning. And if you're a Christian, whether you're a part of our